Hi everybody, shalom, welcome, and uh, we're going to be looking at Parashat Mishpatim. First, a big welcome to viewers on all channels, especially on Torah Anytime. Um, you, if you want, you can click the follow button, then you get more, more of these shirim, as the Mirza Hashem will upload more, but also on any other channel, you could also subscribe. And of course, if you want to, you can share with others, etc. Now, Parashat Mishpatim has so many dimensions to it. The most obvious question, which many Mepharshim deal with, is that it just, it's clearly giving us a sense of something. We are in the middle of a revelation at Har Sinai, right? Kodesh Baruch come down, given us Harris given the Ten Commandments. And the end of the Sedra, the end of the reading of the Torah also has a whole Moshe Rabbeinu leading people up the mountain again, and they have some vision of the creator of the universe, the vision of Kodesh Baruch So in a very sublime, very deep, very intense spiritual moment, and in the middle of it all, we get kind of in the interim, we get, oh, and these are the justice laws. These are the laws that you should put before the people. And then we get loads and loads of, of, of mitzvahs. And it's not obvious why, I mean, it might make a lot of sense that we want to translate the, the beautiful deep thing down into day-to-day -day life. That, Mepharshim point out to us. But why this particular set of mitzvahs? Right? If we go through them, some seem fairly obvious. There's a lot of interpersonal laws, but they're primarily, primarily things like laws of damages, guardians, and so on. We start with the laws of, of the servant, right? So you have an evad, um, you're not allowed to keep them permanently, you have to let them go after six years of service, and if they don't want to, their ear has to be clipped because you're supposed to have heard the message, you're only meant to be a servant to, to Hashem, not to anybody else. Now again, nowadays we don't have a vodim, we don't have servants, but for most of human history, you had to have some form of servitude. The world was basically a struggle to make food and, and, and just to survive. And it, often you had, on farms, you had to have full-time workers and so on. So you had to have some principle, but the Torah wants us that it's only ever temporary arrangement. Even if they, they, they even one of the main ways they could become an avid is if they stole in the first place, couldn't pay back, fine, it still should be gone. And worst case, Avodal Oilam forever, the, the rabbis point out the word Oilam really means till Yovel, a maximum of 50 year uh, uh, period, but they can't be permanent. Okay, and, and so fine. Why is that? The mitzvah is so important to start us off. And then we go from there and, and yield of, of the, of the armor. We go from there into, into killing. What happens if somebody murders somebody accidentally, intentionally, etc., and hitting parents, stealing people, right? Kidnapping. So these seem to be very, very severe. Averis then cursing parents, quarreling and accidentally injuring and so on. And then we go into all other forms of injury, right? First of all, a human injures a human. And then, uh, again, on purpose, accidentally, in the context of a fight or whatever it may be. And we have the very famous psukim of ayin tachas ayin, you give an eye for an eye, a shein tachas shein, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, an injury for an injury. And as you know, the Gemara in the beginning of Perikachoval, the Talmud says that this does not mean literally. It proves it. Many, many different arguments back and forth as to how it can prove that we mean financial payment. Okay, so why does the Torah phrase it as if it's an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, just say pay the value of what you damaged or injured. Okay, and then we talk about uh, now your property damages, right? Your ox kills a person. So we're still in the version of, of killing people, uh, a death. And now not only personal liability, but also if your property causes damage, same thing. And then, and we talk about the in principle, the person should die, but in practice, they can pay they could pay some kind of ransom and there's a discussion in the Gemara. Is it, do you pay the value of the person who died or, the, or your own value, right? What do you pay exactly? And then we talk about your property damaging other property, right? So seriously, laws of, of 
death, injury, damages. That seems to be the theme, and for quite a while it is. So we go through, you dig a pit or something, and, and an animal goes in it and falls, or your ox attacks another ox. Whether it was a, one that's tam or a mud, whether it was first time, or whether it's really done it regularly. Um, we talk about stealing oxen, right? stealing people's property. We talk about uh, general thefts, right? And, and, right? So we kind of interrupt the laws of damages to talk about theft, which is interesting. Why, why would that be? And then perhaps we've dealt with animals, I guess, the halachas. Now we deal with uh, fires, or now we deal with letting oxen go and they eat and graze in other people's fields, right? So we're back, oh, we're back to oxen. So you see, the orders are not so obvious and clear. And we often just gloss over and say, yeah, whatever, there's lots of mitzvahs, we learn each one. But we do think the Torah is building structures here. What is the journey through these mitzvahs? Why these particular mitzvahs? And these are certainly not the only mitzvahs that are ben Adon and that are interpersonal mitzvahs, right? Mitzvah like, after recha love your neighbor like yourself. It's not even here, right? Don't hate your brother in your heart. That all has to wait till Parashas Kedosh, until many, many weeks time of, of Torah readings. It's not even the Book of Shema, it's not even an exodus. So what's going on? And then having now gone into stealing animals, we now go into the issue of letting them graze in other people's fields and then fire, right? Now the Gemara Bava Kama says there's four, Arba Ovas and Ezekiel, there's, there's four prime categories of damages, but here they're broken up with theft in the middle. Next, you have, okay, guardians. Okay, that's the, the Gemara that deals that as Bava Metzia, but the, the different types of... Um, Two, three different uh, discussions here. Guardian who guards for free, although the Torah doesn't describe it that way. Describe it as somebody who guards vessels. Then somebody who guards animals. We assume that's somebody who's being paid to guard. And finally, you have the shoyal, the one who borrows it. And different levels of liability. Okay, might make some sense. And then you get mitzvahs that appear to not really be very connected. Kiafata um a person who seduces a woman who's not yet married. What's the penalty for that? And, uh, and then, can't allow a witch. <laughs> what exactly is that mitzvah? What's going on over there? To, to live. And anyone who sleeps in an animal must be, uh, most humans, and anyone who offers an offering to anything other than Hashem, how terrible it is. And then, it's just like we've left all the interpersonal laws, and then we come straight back to them. Oh, converts or strangers, don't afflict them because you were in Egypt. Right, and then widows and orphans say, okay, well, it's like we just had a little break for certain other, other mitzvahs over there. Right, if a widow or orphan cries out, how terrible it'll be, so don't ever let them cry out, make sure to look after them. And then if you lend money to my, to, to my people, don't, uh, don't, don't charge interest. Um, and, and if you have to lend, if, if you, you have to buy, take collateral, so you have to return it to them every night. Let's suppose they give you clothing. You have to make sure that every time they need it, they get it back. So what's the point of it? And then, don't curse uh, judges and, and and give your tithings on time. Like It's like we just start to jump around, it seems, at this point. And um, you should be holy. Don't eat, uh, don't eat food. Don't eat animals that were that already been damaged and, and are likely to die by themselves. They should just be fed to the dogs, and you can't eat them. And then don't use the name in vain. And then we start getting into all sorts of judicial things. Don't follow majority of people to do bad. Uh, and then a whole bunch of. And then while we're in the middle of this of, uh, of judgments and how to treat courts and judges and how judges should behave, we suddenly have oh, if you meet an ox of your enemy or their donkey stuck on the way, then return it to them. And if they're struggling under a burden, you've got to help them, even if they're your enemy and you've got to unload for them. 
And then if you're judging, make sure not to judge uh, dishonestly. And, and by the way, even if you know that the halacha is correct, even if you know yourself what the law is, but the judicial system won't get it there, you're not allowed to lie, you're not allowed to cheat the system in order to get the right outcome. And then, because it's like, like we start jumping all over the place, and don't, once again, don't afflict strangers and, and converts. And six years you should sow your field, and the seventh year, don't. It should rest. And six days of the week you should work, but on the seventh day you shouldn't. Right? So we see with the, in the beginning it was, seemed at least to be quite thematic, and then we seem to be jumping all over the place. Right, every three, three years, three, three festivals where you come up to Jerusalem. Well, when those days would have been wherever the Mishkan, the house of God is, later it became Yerushalayim, became Jerusalem, and, and various, and then we go through the, the Yom Tovim. And then remember to bring the first fruits to the house of Hashem. Don't cook a goat in its mother's milk. <laughs> what are we going over here? And then we go back to the story. Now we finish these laws, and why, again, why are these particular laws? What? Why are these jumping around? What's, what's going on over here? And how's this connect us to this? Why are these the ones you got to take straight off the Mount Sinai, Har Sinai? So many other mitzvahs in the Torah could have been there, right? You could have had many prohibitions against idolatry. You could have had um, all sorts of, you only have one or two laws of what's prohibited in, in, in outside of marriage. You could have had this 37 later on in the Torah. You could have had laws of all sorts of things. You know, don't, uh, um, don't, you have some laws of kosher, don't eat meat and milk. There's many laws of kosher, which animals you can, can have or can't have. Right? Even within the interpersonal laws, there's many, many laws of charity, all sorts of things that just weren't included. What, what's this selection doing? And then we say, Hashem says, okay, I'm going to send you an angel before you, some kind of messenger who's going to guard you and, and listen to what, what the messenger says and, and, and uh, don't, don't go into the pagan world of the land you're going to enter and so on. And, and then I'm going to make the way clear for you. And uh, this is what happens. You should, uh, don't get influenced by other nations around you. And then says the Bosha, okay, climb up the mountain, you and, and certain group of people, Aaron and his sons, 70 elders, and they should bow down from a distance. And Moshe alone was the one who came up the mountain all the way up to the top. And the others couldn't go all the way. And Moshe comes, he tells the people all that Hashem's saying, and they answer, they say, yeah, now, sir, we'll do it. We had that already last week's Torah reading when we had the Ten Commandments. And now Moshe writes everything, gets up in the morning, they build an altar to Hashem, right? And, and uh, the, the, the young people of, of, of the children of Israel, they go and they, they uh, offer offerings. Moshe takes a whole ceremony and he creates what's called Sefer Brissi as the Book of the Covenant and and reads it to people, and now they add an extra word, they say, Nasa, we will do a venishma, and then we'll understand it. So that's a very famous line, Nasa, venishma, we'll first commit to do it, whether we understand it or not, but then we're going to try and understand it. Okay, and then, then people do go up the mountain, not just Moshe, but now Aaron can go up the mountain, so what just changed, what just happened over here? And they see an image, and here, the psukim, the verses describe what appears on a simple level to be one of the most anthropomorphic descriptions of Hashem in the Torah. One of the most vivid, literally, if you just read it, the Israel, they see the God of Israel, the Tachos Raglov under his feet, like some kind of sapphire work or something, like the purity of the heaven, and against the elites of the children of Israel, Hashem didn't send out his hand, implying he should have done. They should have been punished. They saw God, 
and they ate and they drank. What an enigmatic sukkim. <laughs> and because we're so often so going through the details, there's so many myths to analyze and so many uh, discussions of the Gemara about early pieces that we often don't focus on this later pieces. It seems at first to be completely shocking. And then Hashem says to Moshe, now you come up the mountain and be there. And I'll give you the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments are written on them. Everything is going to be an implication and much more than that as well. Right? The the Gemara says that many, many, many other things, everything really is being given to you. All the knowledge of Torah. And Moshe and Yeshua go up and the elders, say, you wait over here. And there's a thick cloud. Honor of Hashem is there. And... Uh, and then Moshe comes into the cloud, goes up the mountain. He's there for 40 days and 40 nights. And it's in this context that we're then going to get an instruction of building a house of God. And, and while they're up in the mountain, the golden calf will happen. So what, how do we make sense of this section? This last bit seems to belong last week while we were discussing Mount Sinai and the revelation and the Aserah the Ten Commandments. Uh, and, and the first bit's why those mitzvahs. So I want to run us through something. There's many, many aspects and dimensions here that if we put together... Lots of the Gemaras will see something wonderful. I heard many, many years ago, I used to go in the old city to Shir. It was given a Chaim Shul by a rabbi called Rabbi Weinberg. And he, he gave some insights here, which I want to share some. Maybe I won't do everything he was saying and, and some other aspects. But I think together, Mirz Hashem, we get some sense of what's going on. So we're, we're in the middle of the revelation of Harasina. We just had that Sarasa Dibras. Hashem has given the Ten Commandments to the Jewish people. And now, these are Mishpatim, which means justice laws. Laws that one can connect to or least relate to on some natural level. But Tosin Lifneim says Rashi. Rashi brings over here the Chazal like this, that Hashem says, Don't say, I'm going to teach them the law. I'll make sure they know the law. Two or three times I'll teach it to them until it's clear. Uh, but I won't. I'm not going to go through go the tamim, the, the taste or the reasoning or the meaning of the mitzvah. Therefore, tossim lifneim, place it right before them. Kashulchan arch, like a laid out table. The food's been cooked. It's been, it's ready to be consumed. By the way, this is the reason why later on the, the books of Jewish law will be called shulchan arch. Ready to be digested. In other words, these mitzvahs, it's the meaning of them that is the key to understanding the fundamental message. And how does it begin? If you end up with an Avadivri, you end up, and interestingly enough, Rashi also learns from the Gemara here that, um, that it should be, you should be in their own courts. We also learn from this Pasuk Lifneim, should be before them, right? There's, different, there's a law that applies. We only apply the Torah law to the Jewish people, right? There's seven Archaid laws, seven basic principles of, of ethical monotheism, if you like, applies to the whole world. And also, they should use the based in the Jewish courts, even if the ruling will be the same elsewhere. Why is that? It's not obvious here. It will become obvious as we go through, hopefully. But now the first principle to, I'm going to do a bit of jumping, but hopefully, um, God willing, it'll be clear enough that you can fill in a lot of the gaps yourself. So we begin with the principle of ownership, right? In Hebrew, we call it baalus, right? Ownership. And the Torah wants us to get rid of any permanent ownership of others. Later, there'll be other categories of Odin where there are more types of ownership. But in this bit, it just wants us to tell us the plan is we're going to enter the land of Israel. Everyone there is going to be part of Israel, part of this nation. And any human ownership of human has to be very temporary. Because even if you need workers, or even if they sell themselves because they've committed terrible crimes, and the basin says, okay, part of their rehabilitation is they go and work for you. 
it's got to be over. And this number, six years of work and then seventh go free, is of course something that will emerge later on in, in, in the Sedra, in the, in the reading of the six, seven year Schmitter cycle, the six day, seventh day week cycle, where, where everybody goes free. Okay. And we even have a similar principle. So, so the idea here is whether it's the male one, the female one, there's a limit to how much ownership one can have over others. Everybody's meant to ultimately, every citizen of Israel is meant to be a free person. But then we start to talk about ramifications. Now, if they're a free person, what is the penalty for one person dominating, hurting, destroying, or injuring another? Okay, so we talk about the death penalty for killing the person, um, whether it's intentional, not intentional, and so on. Uh, and, and, and then we talk about kidnapping a person. That's, and that's, these are ways of taking control over people. Killing a person is the ultimate desecration of them. Stealing a person is, is the next one down, right? Um, cursing can be as well, right? A person's own parents. That's a complete, in other words, in the desire, what's going on? The, the desire to kill or steal is essentially a desire that I'm in control. I'm in charge, right? And the, per, the Torah is going to progressively move away from I'm in control, I'm in charge. A cursing of the parents is the ultimate trying to, is the next level of kind of trying to be so in charge that I cut myself off from anybody I might be dependent upon. That the Torah says, even to curse them, terrible, right? Goes in the, in the horrific category, right? Life-destroying category. Now we talk about physical domination through injury. Okay, and that's what we talk about. We're not talking about death over, we're just talking about damages, how, how that's got to be done. You've got to, you've got to take complete responsibility for the healing of that person. Um, and then we say like this. So we go through all, all the myths of fighting. Now then we go, go through these words. Ayin tachas ayin, shein tachas shein. Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, I don't remember why I heard this idea, um, but I think it's like this. The Again, the Gemara is very clear that Obviously, it means paying. And in fact, if you listen to, to the Pesukim, to the verse themselves, this is uh, quite naturally. Disaster happens. You should give a nefesh tachas nefesh. It doesn't say you should be killed like you use elsewhere. It's not a death penalty. But you should give a life for a life. How do you give a life for a life? You give it by paying. Okay. But that phrase, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, are phrases that existed in ancient cultures and civilizations. People would have recognized those words back then, right? But why is it giving this vivid image? And even that, that posuk, I think it gives it away. Ein mikriyotim de pshuta, the, the Gemara says, a verse never leaves its simple meaning. The simple meaning here is literally give a life for a life. Give an eye for an eye. Give a tooth for a tooth. In context, it can't mean that. It means money. But why phrase it that way? Why allow a lingering phrase to be used in this way? And ask if it just said pay, you think, okay, I do damage, I pay. But the Torah is saying, don't look at it as pay. Look at it as you're meant to take your own eye out and pay the eye for an eye. In theory, I would take my own eye and give it to you. Person A damage person B, person A would take their own eye and give it to person B. Okay, practically that won't work, right? So you pay the next best thing is money. But don't look at it as, okay, damage, penalty. Look at it as the responsibility to restore. Look at it like this. You do not have a right to take something ever from anybody. Not their life, not limb, not pain, nothing. And if you do, they have a right to claim it off you. You have a responsibility to give it to them. And this word responsibility is going to become the pivotal word that will help us make sense of the structure of everything. So we're moving on a journey. You can't control people. You can't dominate people. 
right? You, you cannot try, you don't try to become this self that can assert itself over others. Quite to the contrary, if you ever do that, you have the responsibility to, to diminish of yourself if necessary in order to restore them. And now watch what happens. And by the way, it's amazing, right? So now we say, even your own property, you own. I have own, I do have ownership over my animals, right? That I certainly have. Well, yes, but ownership means responsibility. If you're, if you, um, if your animal does injury, you, that's part. Ownership means responsibility, not control and power. And this is going to be the movement as we move layer after layer through the sedra. There'll be less and less control and power and more and more responsibility. Now, responsibility is not always total. How far does it go? What are the limits of it, etc. So now we say if your own ox damages, kills somebody, then in principle, you should take the responsibility of even as a death penalty. Okay, you're allowed to pay a kaifa, you're allowed to pay a ransom. And when, and therefore, in other words, of course, you do pay. But amazingly, this makes so much sense. Once you understand this logic of the journey through Mishpatim, through the Sedra, you'll suddenly understand that Gemara, the Talmud has a whole debate here. When it says kaifa, you pay a ransom, how much do you value? You value the, va the value of the person who died as a result of the person's ox killing them? Or does one pay themselves? <laughs> Or see, you can see now both sides. On the one hand, I have to take responsibility, the person has to take responsibility for the fact they killed someone to do the best to restore as close as they can at least their value to their family. Obviously, their value is limitless, but however you value humans. Or is it that no, I'm the one who's in the dock for death, so I should pay ransom for myself? You see, obviously, a ransom for themselves makes sense, right? But this is the question. There's also the aspect of restoring the other. So now both views of the Gemara make sense. On the one hand, I should, the, the person who, who will let their property do that has to feel a responsibility as if they should now be being killed. And on the other hand, they have, to, they have to take responsibility to do all they can to maximally restore to the family what they damaged. These are the two core principles driving their way through here. I have full responsibility of everything in the world and I have to give over myself if necessary to restore. And on the other hand, I, I therefore have responsibility to restore anything damaged. So do I value by me or by them? That becomes the debate in the Gemara. But you begin to see the structure that's moving here. And now these, this order makes sense. Now we're going away from me and my responsibility for, for death. And, and that. But now what, how, how responsible am I for things that I own causing damage? Right, so now, right, we start with a pit. Why do we start with a pit first? Because, and why do we, we break up? Remember, the Gemara discusses four prime categories of damages pits, right? Oxen that gore, ox that eat or, 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 or trample, and, uh, fires. And in, in, in the Sedra, in the Torah here, they're broken up. And the reason is they're very different. In one sense, the Gemara says, the Talmud says that the bar, the pit, when I dig a pit, I, I, know, I want to collect water, but it's in the middle of a public area. That's that's essence. The essence that is, is a damaging entity. Now, what do I have responsibility for? An ox or a donkey fall in there. I'm only responsible for things that in their natural trajectory are going to fall in. So for example, the Gemara are not responsible for a human. Humans can always look where they're going, right? But I have more important and have much more intentionality and understanding about what's going on. But, uh, and vessels, they, they have to be brought in. They don't fall in by themselves. But the minute I dig it, I now have immediate responsibility over, I'm the creator of this thing, even though I don't actually own it. As far as I'm concerned, anybody can use the water. I, right? It doesn't become my private property in any way. But because I created it, I am now immediately responsible for any 
anything that is relatively ordinary trajectory falls in there and damages. And the same thing with my ox attacking somebody else's ox. These are aggressive entities. I've built a hazard. An angry ox is a hazardous entity. I, as the owner, am responsible for any hazard I have and any hazardous behavior in any entity that is dangerous. The ox possessing horns and a bit of natural anger means I now have to watch out for this thing. And again, even the way the Talmud then deals with it, and amazingly enough, the payments are often made, if it's an ox that's never called before, we become partners in it. I lose part of my ownership. Since ownership is about responsibility, uh, right? When, if I damage somebody else, part of the restoration is that they become a shared owner with me in it. And, and that seems like a very strange law until you realize this is the whole point. If you want to own something, you have to be responsible. If you can't be responsible, then part of your restoration is to give of yourself to the other. And now the other becomes the owner, part owner in this ox. Of course, that means the maximum um, that you can ever pay is the value of the ox. And suddenly these laws in the Gemara that are like, well, why? Why are you making it from the ox? Because that's the whole point. We're learning what it means to own things in this world. It's less about control and more about responsibility. But these were entities that naturally are, are in, are, let's say, in damage mode. An ox on an aggressive attack, a pit, right? But now um, we're going to go through other things of, of, and these are all about damaging property. So the next damage of property is when the person themselves is a thief. Right? That's how they damage property. The other types of damages are not in natural damage mode. So we break them up. Right? As me as an owner, it's now, it's now a new dimension. So, so far, so again, if you look at the journey, we've gone from I'm not allowed to control people permanently to I'm not allowed to massively injure them and damage them to my own property. Part of me being an owner is I've got to look out for the, for the aggressive, active, intentional, uh, damaging stuff. And that's part of what it means to be an owner. And I likewise, obviously, can't steal from people. But then we now extend the responsibility, even non-aggressive action. An ox just walking, an ox just eating. Because I'm its owner, my responsibility now goes even further than assuring it doesn't attack somebody. It's hungry. It's going to go and eat. Let me predict that. Let me watch what might happen. And in fact, the verse says, the Pasuk says, Kiyavarish sodeh again, v'shilach as we send... There's a sense in which it's considered like you're letting it go into anybody else's field, right? It's, it's like you yourself have sent it because that's what it means to be an owner and have responsibility. And now, now we're also talking about damaging also, not just animals being the victim of damage, but even property being the victim of damage. So this is another sense in which we're expanding the circle of how we view damages. I am now responsible for my animal just eating even though that's what animals do, right? I am responsible for my animal walking, even though that's what animals do. And I'm responsible if they don't just damage uh, animals, humans or animals, but even if they damage grassland, because that's how I have to respect your property. And similarly with a fire, I can have a fire in a very contained safe area. And here the extra dimension of, of responsibility is, as the Talmud, the Gemara says, this is koyach achamorav, but it can't spread by itself. It needs a gust of wind. Obviously, if I maliciously light your, your property, that's completely different. That's called the Gemara calls ishim So that's called like firing an arrow. But even if you don't, then my responsibility goes, I have to watch out for the possibility that something unusual or relatively semi-usual will happen, let's say a, a Ruach Matsuya type of wind that can happen every so often. Right? I've got to look out for it. So my responsibility is widening and widening. And by the way, this explains an amazing Gemara. The Gemara says that Talmud, if it's hidden, 
the mission or anything that says, then if, if let's suppose somebody hides, I don't know, some really expensive property in the, uh, a painting or a car or I don't know what, in the middle of a barn, a heap of, of grains, I don't have responsibility what's hidden. Because it's, it's a chiddush, it's, it's not obvious that I should be responsible at all. Right? I, but I've got to look out, see what's in the horizon, what can I see over here, whatever I can see, the Torah is going to extend my responsibility, extend my responsibility, extend my responsibility. And this theme is going to, then moves over to, okay, now let's talk about stuff where you don't even damage it, you just don't guard it properly, you're complete, you don't do anything active at all. And we go through again, guarding, uh, guarding different levels of guardianship until finally in different levels of responsibility. If you're not paid, you are paid, right? And then uh, again, the Torah doesn't say not paid and paid. It says looking after vessels where you don't need to do anything and therefore the assumption is you're not paid. Then looking after, um, looking after animals where the assumption is you usually are paid. And then finally borrowing. Now borrowing is unbelievable because in borrowing, of course, I'm not the owner at all, right? And yet even if, Lightning strikes. Even if an owner, something I can't prevent happens to it, I'm still responsible. In other words, I've stepped into the shoes of the owner. It's not, not in the sense of ownership of being mine, but ownership in the sense of responsibility. If I'm benefiting, having all the benefit, you see what's going on? This is all about pulling away from what I own and control and all about how far my responsibility stretches. And once you see this pattern, the sedra moves and moves and the journey through becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. As long as Moshe Rabbeinu is not just telling us the laws, in which case, why this and this and this, but giving us the time, the deeper, the principle is underlying. And by the way, this explains an amazing law, amazing halacha. In Baal of Imai, the Pasuk says, if the, if the owner is there as well, well, then you can't be taking the shoes of the owner. He's, the owner's still there. So you don't have that level of responsibility. Okay, then we seem to, then we move on into other types of responsibility. This is talking about a scenario of consensual, intimate relationship. But it was seduction, and that means that, that um, and it was done with no commitment, no marital commitment. Says the Torah, excuse me, that's not, that's the other meaning of Baalus, husbandry. Right? The whole point of marriage is if you want to engage in life reproductive acts, you do it in the context of permanent commitment. Commitment to care for one another, to financially look after, to, to raise the child together. Anything that violates that, the woman now has the right to turn around and say, if she wants to, I'm now insisting that you take all the lifelong responsibility. You see the, how it moves? You can't take the benefit without the responsibility. This is the point. This is the theme. By the way, why is Mahashefa, the witch, uh, brought in here? So there's a very, very fast, uh, this is now a speculative idea. Um, and I think it might be this, that there's a Gemara that talks about the types of things Mahashefas would do, witches would do. And one of the things they would do is they would curse or put spells on pregnant women and then be insist on, on getting um, certain, perhaps sometimes they charge money or whatever it would be in order to release. So we see why it would go hand in hand with marriage, right? This, the, this is responsibility to, to, um, responsibility to commit, to protect. In those days, by the way, a woman in pregnancy would starve. There was no welfare state. So that's why, really why there had to be a, a committed husband. But in general, that halacha applies in any economic situation. But a machashef was the next stage in the process. Somebody who tries to manipulate, uh, the, the natural childbirth process that you're not even allowed to have in your nation. The, uh, the Rambam or Sajigon and others even, uh, uh, others say that it, it didn't even work. But even the principle that you're trying to manipulate people's vulnerability 
and fears by, and by putting curses on them and then trying to get money extracting to make them feel good, that is so, so disgusting that your responsibility goes so far as to make sure such things don't exist in the people. Others say, like the Ramban, that it can work through some spiritual forces, but either way, this is now how far our responsibilities are going to stretch. Then we talk about uh, a relationship with an animal is a complete act of gratification for control. And again, even if an animal exhibits the type of consent it does with other animals, that's irrelevant. That is a completely inappropriate type of relationship. And a complete, complete. So these, now we're saying, now, again, now we're saying even in a world where, where, you know, animals do fend for themselves in the natural world, they don't have marriages, even then you cannot express that use of another entity. Not use of another human, not use of another animal, right? That's how you have to, to look at everything in the world. And then, now you got to offer to Hashem. You can't, you can't offer to anything else. What is the idea of offering to anything else? And here now we get to, towards the real crux, the way that the whole Sedra wants us to look at the world. Why would people offer to other gods, right? It's not about people who only offer to idols. They're offering to Hashem, but they're offering to other gods because the thinking behind pagan, the pagan system the thinking behind the idea of a sun god and a moon god and a wind god and a rain god and what offers offerings is the person says, look, maybe there's an infinite creator of the universe, but there's also other spiritual forces around. If I could manipulate those, if I could just, you know, the person wants to say, they want more sun, they offer to the sun god. More rain, offer to the rain god. It's how do I control the divine forces? Hashem being the infinite creator of the universe, there's no way to control God. You see how this completely eradicates any control. And when we zavech Hashem, we offer to God, we're not trying to gain any control. What we're doing is we're saying the world belongs to you, Hashem, and we're committing our life to your will. So now, we, now we're beginning to get to the crux of what all these myths have been about. They've all been about, I'm not in control and power. I have more and more sphere of responsibility. And as my sphere of responsibility, what it means to own something is to take responsibility for it. And it means that even in acts humans do between them, they agree to, there's still responsibilities and the responsibilities go further and further. And the point, the depth of the responsibility moment is now we're going to really start to change to build a whole new level here is that that's what it means. I don't even try and control God. On the contrary, I can't. It's the commitment to God, the, the purpose of responsibility. If I'm a person who can take responsibility, then I can take the covenant with Hashem and move it forward. If I'm not a person who could take, if it's just about control, then my mitzvah will be how do I manipulate Hashem to do things. Then I, everything's going to be self-centered in this world. Then I'll never really be a conduit for the Aseris and Dibris of the Ten Commandments. And now we say, now strangers who you have natural power over, right? Just the fact that you're the citizen and they're the stranger or they're the convert or they're not got the security, right? You have to understand, you were strangers in the land of Egypt and says Hashem implicitly, and when I give you the land, it's not that you ever gain control. In many senses, you remain the ger. Your rights to it is as much as you have responsibility. By the way, I want to pause here and just say something very profound um, that uh, the Rabbi Sachs, former chief rabbi of Britain, made the point. In many ways, this sadra introduces the concepts that later on in other cultures and civilizations became called human rights, right? This idea of life and, and doesn't matter what rank you are in society, everybody has a right to life. You can't kill anybody, even disabled child, right? In ancient civilizations, disabled children usually were killed because they couldn't be farmers. Right? The Torah outlaws all this stuff. In, in ancient society, the equal citizen of 
equality of all citizens didn't really exist yet. Elites usually had completely different laws to others. And so on many examples, later on we'll have a Shinantam Lavanacha teaching education for every child. In, even in Greece and Rome, education was always concentrated into tiny elites and so on. The Torah is essentially a book from which many cultures and civilizations then learned a human rights. And yet there's no word for rights. The word, in modern Hebrew, they had to invent the word zechut, right? And zechut, of course, is, is not a right. It's in Hebrew, in Torah Hebrew, it means that which you earn or merit. Right? They don't have a word for rights. The whole of Mishpatim is not about, it generates legal rights, but it's not about rights. That's the point, it's about responsibility. What's the difference? I mean, technically, you can achieve exactly the same ends if I say I have a right to life, liberty, uh, the, you know, uh, property, whatever, private property, ownership, and so on. Or if I say, no, you can't enslave, you can't kill, you've got to preserve other people's property, you can't, can't steal. Right? You achieve the same thing legally, but there's very profound differences, and the Torah will not phrase it in terms of rights. On the contrary, that would violate everything the Torah is trying to do. Because, Rabbi Sachs pointed out, a right is usually a relationship between you and a government. Here you'll notice it's only now about to introduce governing agencies and elements into this. Up till now, res responsibility. See, when I have a right, a right, I walk down the street, I see, well, there's a bit of pavement not there. So what do we do? We blame the government. Oh, terrible. Responsibilities, can I fix it? First, let me, can any of the can any, any of the guys around here, can we, can, we, can we sort this out? There's people who might trip over. My responsibility begins here. If we can't, then go up to the community level. If the community can't solve it, then you go up. Right, so responsibility means I look out for my neighbor. It's a concentric set of circles around me. Do I, could my property, make, make sure I don't attack somebody, make sure I don't control people, attack them, but even my property can't attack them. And even if it's relatively innocent, and even if it's a fire in my, when it needs a wind, well, I've got to keep looking out for others, looking out for others, looking out for others. And that's the most, so it builds communities and societies. But most importantly, what does it teach the person? person who grows up, right, 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 grows up, me, 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 me. I demand from the world, I demand from the world, I demand the world owes me, owes me, owes me. Responsibility means, what am I going to give to the world? This is the core of Zavech Hashem. Hashem's giving you things in the world so that you can give. He hasn't yet made that fully explicit, but I'm leading to where it's about to go. So, Kol Almanaviyosim also care out for every poor person, every widow, don't let them cry. It's not enough to say, oh, you know, it's so easy to oppress and hurt these people just by doing nothing, right? There's not even guardianship. You have to actively be there to make sure the gera, the convert is, is, is okay, feeling secure, to make sure the widow and the orphan are being okay. In Kesef Talvas Ami, now somebody's poor, you've got to lend money. How do you do it in a way that doesn't crush them, right? But this is the whole point. In Kesef Talvas Ami, remember, says Hashem, this is my people. I didn't give you the money just to spend on yourself, right? I gave you the right to that, right? As, as a, you yourself are a stranger. You have the, your only reason you possess anything is to look after others. Imagine trying to take a bite out of them whilst, whilst, uh, literally use the word nashach, which is used usually for when a snake is nash, is nashach, bites, right? We don't, we don't allow you to behave that way. A collateral you're allowed to hold is value, but never let that person not have it. So our entire purpose is to try to restore them. Right? Even later on in halacha, when you can have heta iskas, the real principle is you're meant to become a business partner with the person. Lift them, build them, right? Don't just, oh, I've done my duty, I, I can lend them some money, now I can take, I can get money back off it. Then alim lo And now we move up 
if you like, up in the levels of responsibility. The justice system itself needs to be respected. The people who take responsibility for the community need to be respected. And then, all the gifts that you give to the people who look after the nation, right? In Torah, the, the height, the kayanim, the priests are not allowed to own land. Right? We don't want to be like other cultures where the people who have religious responsibility also have privilege. It's dangerous. So they won't own land, but they depend upon you. And your land, therefore, you have to give to them. Don't see, see, don't see private property as essentially it's mine. It's first about what you're going to give into the nation, into, the, into those around you, then into the poor around you, and then where you can lend to support them, and ultimately into the national institutions that are going to help build the entire people. Cain does all this thing and, and, and offerings for the temple for the, for, for the, to dedicate your life to, to God. And then, this is how you become holy. Those who haven't ever seen it, always look in the Hagdama, the introduction of Rabbi Shimon Shkop in the Shari Yosha, where he explains to be holy means to be a giver. Yes, it includes detaching from self-centered behavior, but it means to be a giver. Don't eat, don't eat, don't eat animals that have, um, that are, that are going to die by themselves. Rosh Hashanah has a beautiful piece on this in, in Chorov where, where he says, okay, obviously some of these myths, some of them stretch way beyond where our mind can access. But the principle is that no animal should be eaten that a human didn't take out of this world. If it was going to die through other processes, then it's not a part of what, because what you ingest inside you builds the body, brain, mind, because it can be a house of Hashem. And we have to even take responsibility that we only put inside us an animal that was brought out of the world through human action. Because we're going to be full of animal, and we have to be able to tame that too. And of course, like there's also things that should be fed to dogs. We take responsibility even for the animals around us, right? There's many dimensions to this. But the, you see what's happening is we're building what a human being is. We're building what a member of Klal will be. Then we're behold, okay, we're a little, a little uh, struggling for time here, but the next bits introduce, um, introduce uh, don't go after the masses to do bad. And again, there's many halachas, there's laws that follow how courts should rule. Rashi says on a very simple level, it means don't follow the crowds. Just because you're part of communities, you should take responsibility for what's right and good, even if everybody else is going wrong. They're all doing our it's irrelevant. You do what's good. To the point where, not only are you just going with the crowds, now when every, because then you have your social instinct to want to be with everybody else. No, this is the next level of responsibility. Go against everybody else to do good. Now, next level of responsibility, your enemy, we're not even talking about not damaging them. Their donkey's just lost. You have, they'll never know that you saw it. Every instinct inside you says, no, next level of development, conquer that. Return it to them. You see them struggling under a burden, Take off your work if you need to. You can get paid for the time off work, whatever, but you have to go and help, right? So now we're moving away from looking out for the widows and the orphans to, to they, they know they're crying, they know they're in pain, something's lost, somebody's struggling. You've got to go and you've got to, to take responsibility to the next level. Then we get into all these court case laws and even with Vashak stay away from falsehood. But even when you know what the truth is, you cannot manipulate the system. And here we start to reach the climax of all of this is, is um, you can't take a bribe, even to do the right. You know you're going to rule in favor of this one. They want to give you a gift. No, you absolutely cannot. And once again, now, again, the same principle, but here we're introducing extra things. The Pasuk says an amazing thing, stay away from false things, and don't uh, kill the innocent, because I will not justify the evil. Now, this is very interesting. Of course, why would you, you know, 
what's going on over here? Don't kill innocent people because I won't allow evil, right? Right. So, so simple level is God will punish people who punish others. But on a deeper level, the Gemara says, even means even if they came out innocent in court and then later evidence came to, to, uh, to um, accuse them and new witnesses come and so on, you don't bring them back in. You're going to say, but then justice won't be done. We're following the system, right? What, what happens if I, I know for sure I saw, I saw this person commit the crime, but there's not two witnesses. Can I get, pay a second person to lie so that I know justice will be done? No. What's going to happen though? But you're going to have guilty people running around. Loyats de Grosh Hashem says, I'm running the world, not you. I've told you what to do. I've told you how to do the right thing. I've told you to tell the truth. You tell the truth. This is what you saw. This is what you didn't see. Don't try to manipulate the right results. And this is the key of all keys. I've given you this world, Hashem. I want you to be my partners. But don't try to push what you think are the good results, even if it's obvious the good result. Trust me on results. I'm in control. Let go. You put all the right inputs in. This is now the climax and the real meaning of, that's what it means, Zavir Hashem. Commit your life to God. Trust that God will run the world. You've got to do the godly thing in every situation. It'll make you unpopular, do it anyway. It won't achieve the right results, do it anyway. Just input good. Then you are able to be in the covenant with me. Now we can see what this incredible journey through Mishpatim has been. Away from I'm in charge of the world, all the way through what it really means that Hashem is in charge of the world. These are the mitzvahs that generate this one after another. And each mitzvah teaches us this principle. As we live each one, we live this journey. Through Bava Kama, through Bava Metziah, through all of these Sanhedrin, right? And then, okay, now that you're getting that, now let me tell you, even the land I give you, six years you'll work it, but the seventh year, no, no ownership, no control whatsoever. Six days, seventh day, no control, no ownership. Right? You get a maximum. Before it was six years of, you're maximally allowed to own somebody. Now it's own anything, nothing. It's always the number six and the seventh always goes to Hashem. And then, um, okay, we'll, we'll, again, I'm little time I want, I want to get towards the end, but this is now what it's going to mean that three times you're going to come to the base of Mikdash and you won't see my face empty, right? That's why you, you've got to really, three times you come to renew the sense of commitment to my, to the meaning of what it is that you're around. Um, Okay, Rachel, uh, we got to bring the first of the fruits. What about uh, meat? Don't cook the goat in its mother's uh, milk. So there's many levels to this. Rosh Hashanah Hirsch says a beautiful thing. He says that, that again, the level, the real depth of this may is, is beyond our ability to grasp. It's in the, the infinite wisdom of God. But we, we can hear is that milk is life and meat is death. The child, right, in its mother's milk. The mother's milk, again, it applies to all meat and milk. So... Me. So why do we say, why do we have an image of, of, of uh, the goat in its mother's milk? Because the, the verse never leaves its primary meaning. You see the mother's milk, that's like its life-nurturing source. You can't cook that together with a dead thing, right? You see, in other words, you feel we're dealing with life and death. In Torah, we never mix the two. This is where later Hilchus Nidah will come in. If there's been a loss of life in a body, you can't start reproducing life and many dimensions to this. But it's also the bring Rishayim, the Zaya Kaddish, the principle that the nurturing mother is the system from above, the child is the system from below. Don't mix the two together. We are nurturing, as it were, from the milk of the mother. The mother's milk is, is the Torah that's flowing into the world. The Lord is flowing in from above, from Hashem's running the world from above. 
we are the child below, right? We don't mix the two. And that means that we don't get in the way of God's plan for the world. He's in control. We got our activity we got to do down here in this world. And that becomes reflected in the way that we look at food, right? At a very deep spiritual level, the principle of not mixing generations. We'll see much later on in the Torah, you can't eat on the same day, the mother and child. But right now it's that mixing the mother's life-giving, right? So we don't mix God's life-giving running of the world with our worldly activity of how to deal with, with, uh, with things in this world. Okay, there's many, this is just a little hint at some of the, the depths that's underlying all of these principles. But now, says Hashem, okay, I'm going to send you a malach. There's a gap between my running the world and your world. And therefore, there's going to be an intermediary. Now, what is a malach generally? A malach is not a baby flapping around with wings like in a Renaissance painting. A malach literally means a messenger. If we learn all the makaris, it's a big sugya, but in essence, it appears that it's like this. It's a bit like in modern day metaphor, like an algorithm. Like there's something, like a program. A malach is a program. It's conscious, it's aware, it's flowing with divine energy, it's bringing divine light into the world, but it's programmed. And that's why a malach cannot do what it can't do. It Even if Hashem says, do something, and it isn't programmed, it will say, I can't do it. Right? It's not arguing with Hashem or resisting Hashem, it just, that's what it is. But Hashem is saying, and why do we need malachim? Because we can't deal directly with the revelation of Hashem. And how Sinai already, there was too much, because Hashem is thinking us into existence. If we become totally conscious of that, we dissolve into being figments of his imagination. So after a lifetime in this world, when we've used our free will to bring Hashem's light in, then we're ready to face him and not be dissolved by it. Because even though his light will fill us completely, but we will always have the memory that we made the choice to bring him in. But that's a lifelong work. Right now, says Hashem, you're operating down here. I'm driving things from a distance. I'm over here. And therefore, I'm going to send you this malach. But Moshe Rabbeinu, there is such a thing as climbing the mountain. You, you guys now all in this world have a sense of responsibility, a sense that you've got to play your role in history, but a sense that I'm really running the world. But you, and your job then, next job, is to climb the mountain. And the Rambam tells us whenever whenever Hashem tells somebody to physically climb a mountain, he means they have to spiritually climb as well. And this is exactly what now happens. These mishpatim are doing that by cultivating the sense of responsibility, by letting go of control, by letting Hashem run the world, and yet not letting go does not mean being less responsible. It means being more responsible. It means having less power over things, but in everything, looking at how can I serve Hashem? How can I not do damage, but how can I do good in all that I do? And then we begin to climb the mountain. And as we climb the mountain, what he says is, uh, Hashem says, Alei el Hashem, climb up to Hashem. Physically climb a mountain, but climb in your mind, in your depth, in your tikkun amidas, in your rectification of your inner workings. You and bring everybody up. Aaron, his sons, Nodon Avihu, right? Shivim, the 70 of, of the elders. But do the bag down, do your commitment while there's still a distance. In other words, don't wait till you're all the way to full level of grasping Hashem before you commit yourself. You can bow from the distance. Climb up the mountain, but also why is it important to maintain a distance? Because as a human gets closer to Hashem, the more likely that there's still going to be some self-centered thinking. And as we think about Hashem, we end up projecting ourself and our will onto Him. There's many subtle ways we do it, but we, we do it all the time. And we've got to purify ourselves, stay distant, bow down, says the Rambam, and then climb closer again. 
Now Moshe goes all the way up, and now at this point the people are saying Nasa, and this is when Nasa becomes Nasa Vanishma. Because Nasa means we get, we'll do whatever you say, Hashem, but Nasa Vanishma means, oh wow, the, the commitment to mitzvahs, the mitzvahs themselves are the portal to becoming more and more godly. These mitzvahs that change the way that we are open us up into Anishma. And this is why Talmud Torah connected Kulam. Why teaching a Torah and learning a Torah is like all of the mitzvahs. Because it's taking every situation, say, what is the divine message in this? And it rectifies and builds us into people who are less self-centered, who are more God-centered, purer, greater people. And this is what the Gemara says. I write, a person wants to, do, to, to, to get Hasidus, he should be Isaac and Milad and Ezekiel. Learn all these, learn all these things. It's a part of the pathway to inner purification. And this inner purification allows us to climb the mountains. It's not just Nasa, we'll do it no matter what Hashem. It's Nishma. It's like in every relationship. We start very self-centered. My agenda, what can I get? I'll be nice to them to get what I want. Then comes Nasa, whatever they want, I'll do. And then comes Nasa and Nishma. They want me to get flowers. I don't understand why it's special. Let me try and just to get a bit of a sense of what they see in these things so that my brain, my neurons are more aligned with their way of thinking so that everything I do can be more connected to them. This is Talmud Torah. I don't just do the mitzvahs because Hashem says and I do. Yeah, of course I do the mitzvahs. Of course I love you, Hashem. And we're in the bris, we're in the covenant, we'll do that, we're committed. But now, Savanishma, we're going to learn from them. We're going to understand them. We're going to reprogram our brain to be less self-centered, more God-centered, more you-centered, Hashem. More about not what we control in the world, but how we take responsibility about accepting that you're running history and always doing the right thing in every situation, whether it's popular, whether it's unpopular, whether it means I have to look out for how, what could happen as a consequence of actions, whether it means I have to look out for who's suffering around me, whether it means I have to help my enemy when nobody else might ever know about it. And then I can climb the mountain. Nishma. I'll, I'll understand it. I'll train my brain to, as it were, see the world through a God's eye perspective. That allows me to take steps up the mountain. What do they see? The problem was that they looked at Hashem while they were still too self-centric. They were purer than we might ever be. Tremendously great people. But on whatever level you're on, says the Rambam, there's always a bit of self. And when you look at Hashem, you always a little bit project your own agenda. Hashem must surely want what I want. Hashem must surely think like me. It starts from people, why do bad things happen to good people? Which often means why do things I can't deal with in the world happen? to why does Hashem give these mitzvahs? Doesn't make, make sense. But why is Hashem not doing what's mine? Now these, these are very high, difficult questions, but they're mostly difficult because we're still sure that the way we see the world is the way the world is, is that all there is to the world, our perspective, no matter what level we're on, there'll always be a bit of it. What does it mean they saw the feet? Says the Rambam, it doesn't mean feet. Regal means that which is caused. First of all, regal means regarding regular things. Right? So it can mean feet because feet have, re but it also means causation. And that's why the word regal means, means feet because it's regular causation. It's what moves you. But look at what Yaakov Avinu, what did Jacob, what did Yaakov say to, to Esau? I can't go with you because of the children, because of the work. Regal means that which causes something. It can be the regular motion of, of, that causes time. That's a regal. It can be feet that cause motion but it means that which is caused. In other words, tachas ragla means they, they, they went in their mind closer and closer to Hashem and they confused Hashem himself with that which he causes, with nature, with certain, or maybe very, or very deep spiritual powers or forces. But it was still not God himself. 
And the danger of trying to work out, you know, of, of that little subtle error, they saw God, they were still physical. There was still too much eating and drinking. There was still too much embedded in the self. It was not selfless enough for the level of prophecy they were trying to attain. And it had horrific consequences. Later on, it'll be going into the Beis HaMikdash, trampling boundaries that Hashem set without even, again, on levels way above us. But that's what happens. And so this is, but was Moshe is the one who can climb up and he climbs into the world of the cloud that no one else can see. But he gets, he in that world can get the Torah that can come down to us. All the different, the Torah, the, all the different aspects of Torah that can filter down to us. And what, the reason we learn Torah the way we do from a very external laws and then what's the reasoning behind it, what's the lambdas, what's the, is because our brain has to constantly be on a journey getting closer to Hashem, closer to Hashem. We have to always be climbing the mountain and we have to always know where, where there's still some self-centeredness in that needs purification. And this is why it's not a matter of what's the right outcome. If it's the right outcome, this is why the law has to be given as a shulchan so that we can really work our way up, not just know the halachas deeply connect to the meanings and understandings, change our brain's thinking from what we call Hava Amina, as a self-centered being, this is what I would have thought, to Kamash Malon, this is what I now hear, is heard to us. Now, it's not just me, it's, it's right? I would have thought this, we get this taught to us, but the, the, this is what's being taught, this was what I'm hearing, and now I'm, I'm changing my brain, I'm thinking more godly, thinking less self-centered, through, through level after level, and it's not good enough just to go to a court and get the right outcome. What is the right input? Is it a people who completely give their life and everything over to Hashem and say, we'll, we'll do what's right in every situation. So this gives some sense of once you realize this, I think it makes, it makes such beautiful flow from mitzvah to mitzvah. It's literally the journey of less control, more, more openness to godliness, how it manifests into every detail of the way we think about anything we possess in this world. It's not a possession. It's not ours. It's what we're responsible for. It's what we're given by Hashem to, to give godliness, to care for others. It's what we, we're given by Hashem to dedicate our life and commitment for and, and the reminders that it can never be more than six years, never more than the six days He put into creation. The seventh has to be when it's completely godly. And, and this is exactly the Mishpatim Shatasim Aflame, the laws placed before them so they have a journey so that they can climb the mountain. Nowhere to bow from a distance, nowhere not to get know where they have to purify themselves before they get closer and know how to enter the cloud and come down with all the mitzvahs and all the rest of the Torah. So there's not much more to say, lots of details we were not able to go through, but hopefully even this just somewhat scraping a little bit beneath the surface gives us something to work with. Hashem shall all of us on our journey through the Mishpatim and all of us on our journey through Kabbalah Satorah.